1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. Let's hear the Lord's word. And the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass while the ark abode in Kirjath-Jerim that the time was long, for it was twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel, saying, If ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the strange gods and Ashtaroth from among you, and prepare your hearts unto the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth, and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered together to Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel in Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel were gathered together to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the children of Israel said to Samuel, Cease not to cry unto the Lord our God for us, that he will save us out of the hand of the Philistines. Samuel took a sack suckling lamb and offered it for a burnt offering holy unto the Lord. And Samuel cried unto the Lord for Israel, and the Lord heard him. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day upon the Philistines and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. And God bless the reading of his word for his own name's sake. Let's bow our heads for a moment, please. Let's seek the Lord together. Our God and our Father in heaven, in this time of looking into thy word, we pray that there will be that divine enabling to look into it, whether from the preacher's vantage point or that of thy people. We need thy help. Make this to be a word in season, all for thy glory, and in the name of Jesus we pray, amen, amen. Integral to the stand and witness of the Free Presbyterian Church is her long-standing emphasis on the need to pray for God to send a gracious revival to his church. You who have been in the free church for decades know this. That conviction is not in any way diminished by the spiritual darkness of the day or any viewpoint we may hold concerning the doctrine of last things. We have put it down in writing in our statement of purpose that we are looking to God, and I quote, to revive his work in this age of apostasy. 
It doesn't matter how spiritually dark things may get in this land, how widespread and deep the apostasy, how cold the love of God's people may be. We believe the scriptures encourage God's people to pray for and to labor for a gracious reviving among his people, especially, especially during the dark times. God alone determines the extent of such a reviving, but it is our responsibility to pray for and to preach for a return of spiritual awakening and power to the church. After all, dark times have never stopped God before from reviving his work once he had set himself to revive his work. The passage we've read this evening is a case in point. The historical backdrop to the passage was during one of Israel's very low spiritual points. During the time period of the judges, although at the end of that period, because Samuel was the last of the judges, to get a pulse on the spiritual heartbeat of the nation at that time, we need only to remember the last words of the book of Judges, how things were when they said in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Therefore, it was a time of political anarchy. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was no law ruling the land. But on the spiritual front, things weren't much better. Yes, there was still a remnant who believed. And yes, there was a man of God by the name of Eli. But we find out from chapter 2 of this book that he wasn't the man of God that he should have been either. He had indulged the, the very licentious behavior of his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, whom he still allowed, in spite of their lifestyle, he still allowed them to be priests in Israel. And because of their profane behavior, verse 17 of chapter 2 states that men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Imagine that. They abhorred, they detested the offering of the Lord because of Hophni and Phinehas and their father not putting a stop to it. Things took a dramatic turn for the worse when Israel went into battle against the Philistines. Not only did they lose the battle along with ten thousands of soldiers, but they lost the ark of God in the process into the hand of the Philistines. It was upon hearing that the ark of God was taken that Eli, an old man and very overweight, He fell off the the seat he was sitting on and broke his neck and died. It's upon hearing that the ark of God was taken that the wife of Phinehas dies in childbirth. And as she's dying, she names her newborn son Ichabod. The glory has departed, she said, for the ark of God is taken. 
Chapter 4 of 1 Samuel records the judgment of God that came upon the Philistines while the ark was in their possessions. Thousands were slain by a plague in every city where that ark was sent. The Philistines finally wise up and decide they're going to pacify Israel's God if they return the ark back to its rightful owners. There was a great day of rejoicing when the men of Beth Shemesh who are laboring in the field, they see this oxen and cart uh, pulling the Ark of the Covenant. It's returning to the land. Things would now, they're sure, be different. The Ark's returning. God's among us again. But that joy is soon turned to sorrow when 50,000 people died because someone took the mercy seat off of the ark and looked into its contents. The law of God. You can't look upon the law of God apart from the mercy seat, the blood being shed. Bad mistake. 50,000 died. The terror that the ark had struck in the hearts of the Philistines was now being felt by the Israelites. And so this ark is sent down to the house of Abinadab in the city of Kirjath-Jerim, where it was cared for by one Eleazar. Things are all out of place in the religious life of Israel. Her worship of Jehovah has been turned upside down. The ark, the centerpiece of Israel's worship, was sitting in a man's house in kirjath far, far away from Shiloh, where all the other vessels of the sanctuary were kept. That wasn't enough. The Philistines now had complete dominance over the Israelites. These were dark days indeed. But God was still on the throne. And these people who were living in despair under the oppression of the Philistines were still God's people. And it pleased the Lord to intervene in their situation and turn the tide. It pleased the Lord to intervene in their situation and he turned the tide. It is that turning of the tide, that reviving that came to Israel that I want to speak for a few moments this evening with you about. My title is simply Revival Truths. Revival Truths. Truths about revival. The first truth is this. It deals with the indictment of revival. The indictment of revival. Revival brings an indictment against God's people. Because if, if they stand in need of revival, it's because they have lost out somehow with God. A charge to which they must plead guilty. If you need reviving, then something's wrong. If you need revival, then there's a sickness, there's a deadness. There's a lack of life. 
reviving. The fact that God must revive his people is a reflection that they have fallen into a state of spiritual declension from which they need to be revived and brought back again. If you look carefully at this passage, you'll find the lives of the Lord's people in those days. The very things that indict the people of God in our day. That's crying out. We need revival. First, there was indifference. There was indifference to God, to God's name, to God's work. Indifference. Things were not right. There's no mention, not a word, of sacrifices being performed. No indication that the annual feasts, the ones we actually read about in the scripture lesson, the three feasts that were to be had, not a word about them being held. And the ark, it was away off in Kirjath-Jerim, not at Shiloh where the tent of meeting was. Remember the ark was, it was but a symbol of a spiritual reality. The spiritual reality was God's presence. That's what it symbolized, God's presence. It symbolized God's power and it definitely symbolized God's pardon. That's what the mercy seat covered with blood was about. Mercy for sinners. Mercy is about sin-deserving people. Ultimately, of course, it was a picture of Christ. It was an object lesson to teach Israel who that coming Messiah would be and what he would do. The one to whom they must look as they serve and worship the Lord. But no one was really bothered by that fact. No one was lamenting over the state of things. No one. Perhaps Samuel would have been the exception. The majority of the people of God in that day were content with the current state of religion, the Jewish religion, the religion of Jehovah in the land. Their religion wasn't marked by adoration. It was marked by apathy. They were willing to go along with things as they were. And the interesting thing is from verse 2, we learned that it went on that way for 20 years. It came to pass while the ark abode in Kirjath-Jerim that the time was long, for it was 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. That does not mean that they were lamenting for 20 years. It means that that ark was in that place, Kirjath-Jerim, for 20 years in that state, and no one was lamenting. Let me contrast their spirit with the spirit of David some years later, when the ark of God, due to that blunder of Uzzah, It was placed in the house of Obed-Edom. David longed for the ark of God to come to Jerusalem. He said, how long the ark of the Lord 
before the ark of the Lord come to me? That was his constant question. How long is it going to be? As a matter of fact, three months passed before he heard that God was blessing the house of Obed-Edom. And immediately, once he learns that, we're bringing this ark to Jerusalem. He couldn't wait to get it back there. Here was the man after God's own heart. And he shows that heart for God is anything but indifferent to the ark of the Lord. But here in Israel, there is widespread indifference about the ark of God and therefore God himself. It was a picture of him. A representation, uh, the reminder constantly of God among them. Revival was needed. Things must change in the land. Let me point out that this is always a mark of God's people when they have this indictment of revival against them. Christ, symbolized by the ark, is not the centerpiece of the church's worship or the lives of God's people. He's not the centerpiece. He's away off in the distance in the preaching. I mean, you can say the name of Christ 25 times, 50 times in a sermon and not have Christ being the centerpiece of the message. Just repeating the name does not mean you've preached Christ. It's a person. A living Savior. Who's real. Whose presence is to be felt and known. But in times when revival is needed, he is away off in the preaching. He's away off in the praying. If the praying is being done at all. And... He's away off in the walk of the Lord's people. The experience of the presence of God is rare. The experience of God's presence, whether in the house of God, whether in the believer's prayer closet, whether in the fellowship of the Lord's people, just enjoying the experience of God's nearness. The power of the Lord is not felt. I'll tell you one thing when preachers try to make up for the lack of power in ways that are so dishonoring to the Lord. Let's just preach loud and shout. That's power. Yet I have have seen more power in a little still small voice than all the shouting in the world. Because it's God that's speaking. It's the Lord that has the heart. The pardon of God so symbolized by the ark, so seen in Christ, is, is little enjoyed 
the cross. The, 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 we, we, you know, Jesus, keep me near the cross. It's a song that's sung. But actually living near the cross. What's that all about? Really. Living near the cross. And the sad thing is that there is widespread indifference among the Lord's people about the state of things. It's almost a ho-hum. Well, that's just how it is. The days are dark and what are you going to do? You think that's right? I don't. Yet I find it's prevalent. Believers are content to go along with the way things are, drift along with the religious crowd, not not really missing the Lord, not really wanting anything different, content, complacent, careless, no spiritual appetite. No hunger for God's word. No no longing for close fellowship with Jesus Christ at the throne of grace. Indifferent. Indifferent to the means of grace. Indifferent to a, a life of purity. A life of holiness. Indifferent. Oh, long as I don't get involved in the gross sins, it's all right. But the cry of McShane, God, make me as holy as possible for a sinner saved by grace to be, doesn't enter the life. And I'll tell you what else that marks it, indifference to the lost. Let him go to hell. Just let him go. And a thousand and one reasons why... There's no need to try to reach them, to say anything to them. Indifference. Just not caring. There's also idolatry. Verses 3 and 4, Samuel tells them to put away their idols and their strange gods. Twenty years, the ark has been in Kirjath-Jerim, not in Shiloh. Twenty years. Twenty years they've been engaged in idolatry. No concern about it. This was a way of life for them. They had accepted it. Sanctioned it. It's okay. It's all right. No big deal. We're still Jehovah's people. We still belong to God. And yet they had idols and strange gods in their homes. Particularly the god of Balaam and Ashtaroth, the chief male and female deities of the Canaanite religion. But you see, they, they, they knew better. They had a, 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 a whole history of what happens to God's people when they go off to idolatry. Just read the book of Judges. Over and over again, you go off, there's going to be judgment. 
You'll be sent into bondage. You're going to be sent. I'm going to bring the enemy in. They're going to waste you. Until they saw it. Okay, we'll turn back. Here, they, they knew better. I mean, wouldn't need there to be a spiritual giant in the land to figure out that the oppression of the Philistines they were now experiencing was but the judgment from God for their idolatry. But you see, when you're in a state of spiritual declension, it doesn't really matter. That, that, that thought doesn't cross the mind. The, the, the reason we're having all these problems is because we've got idols. And God is not happy with our idolatry. He's not happy with these strange gods. Doesn't even figure into the equation in their mind. It sounds strange, but it shouldn't. When you're in a state of spiritual declension and backsliding, you're not thinking clearly. So they're in need of revival because of idolatry. The commandment is clear. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the word before me simply means in my face. Do not bring idols in my face. And yet if we are honest with ourselves and with God... We will have to confess the fact that the church, Christian homes and hearts are plagued with idolatry. Not idols of wood or stone or metal, but they're idols nonetheless. What's an idol? An idol is anything that becomes an object of devotion, attention, importance. In the place of God. We desire it. More. Than we desire God. We're more concerned. More interested in. The idol. Than we are the Lord. And it always gives evidence in our actions. Paul for instance. Told the church at. Colossae, that covetousness was the same thing as idolatry. I think Paul was particularly plagued with that sin of covetousness before the Lord saved him. You remember in Romans chapter 7, I had not known covetousness except the Lord had said. So, mm, Paul, you must have been a covetous man. Idolatry, he calls it. How so? Because... mm, Materialism becomes the altar at which the child of God worships. I know it's not this bowing down and praying to it, but for all intents and purposes, it actually is. It's the pursuit of the life to get as much as you can. You know, he who dies with the most toys wins, as the bumper sticker says. It may sound far-fetched, but it's, it's, it's far more a reality and an occurrence in Christian homes than you'd begin to imagine. What's really important? What's the most? What's the priorities here? Martha and Mary had different priorities. Martha was really annoyed at her sister Mary because she wasn't in the kitchen helping her. 
she, she thought she should be here. All these people to feed, and I'm by myself. Speak to Mary, tell her. Martha, Martha, thou art troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen, she hath chosen that better part, and it will not be taken from her. Mary had her priorities right. Martha did not. Priorities. Devotion to materialism, if that's what we're talking about at this point, it brings everything into subservience to that. Everything serves the idol. The thoughts, the actions, everything, it revolves around that. And so you labor and you labor to get more and more and more. While Your own soul's needs are ignored. The spiritual needs of the family, they're ignored. The needs of the church are ignored just so he can get more and more of of this world's goods, this world's pleasures, and this world's happiness. How many hours do you think are spent on Facebook by Christians or whatever social media platform? I'm not in it, so I am ignorant, I confess. I know they're out there. But how many hours do you think are spent on that? And yet there's not five minutes of prayer. Something's wrong. It's an idol. That's what's being served. That time spent that's more valuable, that's worth more to that child of God than actually talking to the Lord. It's more important to post whatever they're doing, wherever they're going, than it is to actually see what God has posted forever in his book. That's idolatry. But that's where we are. And then that idol brings the child of God into bondage from which he finds it impossible to break free. I think one of the other large idols that loom in the church of Jesus Christ is the modern day idol of entertainment. Both on the religious front because that's what so many churches it seems to me are using to get people and to keep people as entertainment but it's also a much bigger problem in the average Christian home entertainment the need to be entertained It's looking to something to fill a void that can never be filled by anyone but God. It's looking for a distraction. Amusement means without musing, without thinking. Help my brain to shut down. Let me escape from all the pressures of life so I'll sit down and watch a favorite series or a favorite movie or whatever it's going to be. Entertainment is one of the biggest idols found in the church in this generation. 
Of course, the idol behind it all is the idol of self. Self is the big idol. Me. Self-will, self-satisfaction, self-indulgence. Self. And when self is the God, you have dethroned the Lord from your life. That belongs only to Christ the King. But when life becomes about your desires and your wants, and your needs and your aspirations at the expense of what God has told us to be and to do, then we're rife with idolatry. People of God have returned to idolatry. And that's why I believe that God is not manifesting his presence and his power in the church as he has in former days. That's a sad point. We would be foolish, however sad it may be, to ignore it. The next point, the indications of revival. There's the indictment, the indications of revival. As you read this passage, you find that things began to change in Israel. And and these changes were clear indicators that reviving was coming amongst the Lord's people. What do we see? Remember, 20 years, they were quite content with how things were. 20 years. But things began to change. In the first place, they were broken over their spiritual state. They were broken. The, 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 the first indication that things were different in the land is found at the end of verse 2. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. For 20 long years, there was no lamentation. For 20 years, they were plagued with indifference and idolatry. But things began to change in the land. They began to lament. That word lament in the Hebrew means to wail. They began to wail. The change began first when you think of their lamentation in their prayer life. They began to cry to God and they began to weep before the Lord. I mean, you start to see that happening. The Lord's people wailing. The Lord's people lamenting. The Lord's people weeping after God. The Lord's moving. You can't manufacture this. You can't. They were not lamenting, wailing, and crying over, I want to point this out, their temporal state. Although it was bad, the the Philistines were oppressing them. And the Lord was using that oppression, as he had done so many times before. But that's not what they're lamenting. They're lamenting, note it, after the Lord. They were wailing for God to return to them. 
Finally, finally, they began to miss the ark. They began to miss that which was the symbol of God's presence and of his power and of his pardon. They began to long for the Lord again, long for him. They weren't satisfied anymore with their status quo religion. They knew there was something more and they wanted it. They were longing for the Lord to return in his glory to Israel. What was happening? Well, the people of God, quite simply, they were beginning to grieve over the sins that had driven the Lord away from them. That was the problem. All along, that was the problem. I don't think for one moment that the, the, the place that the Church of Christ is in in this day is simply, well, it's just not, you know, conducive. It's not the time. This is how things are. And what can we expect? I think it's utter nonsense. There's a reason why things are the way they are right now in the Church of Jesus Christ. The eyes of these Israelites had been opened. And it's like the, they, they, they're seeing for the first time that they have been without the Lord for a long time. You've had that experience, haven't you, in some way? It might even be in a, in a, in a spiritual way. But something, you're, you're, you're driving somewhere or something happens and it reminds you of the old days. I remember those days. We long to have those days again. That's what's happening here. Longing. One of the great timeless truths of revival is that its beginnings can be seen when the people of God shake off their indifference and begin to lament after and to long for the Lord. Where is that blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is that soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? What peaceful hours I once enjoyed, how sweet their memory still. But they have left an aching void this world can never fill. That's what we're talking about. You don't miss something you've never had. How can you? But when you've had it, and you've lost it for whatever reason. You know what it is to miss it. And to long for it. 20 years they didn't miss the Lord. Just traipsing along. Day in and day out. I want you to see that this lamentation was in conjunction with the ark of God. That's what verse 2 indicates. It was in conjunction with the ark of God. It was in the house of Eleazar. 
Uh, and 20 years they hadn't, but now they, he mentions the ark, and now they're longing. They began to miss the ark. They wanted to return to its rightful place because it was the heart of their worship. And I will tell you another revival truth. It's an indication that revival is on its way, whether personal or corporate, when God's people begin to miss Christ. When they begin to miss Christ and to long for Christ to return to his rightful place in the preaching and in the praying and in the joy. Reminds you of that question asked back in David when the land was split. Why speak ye not a word of bringing the king back? That's a great text. This lamenting after the Lord was the beginning of the victory that Israel was soon going to enjoy over her enemies, and it will be the same for us today. But not until there is the brokenness of heart. Longing, lamenting. Secondly, they put away their idols, verse 4. Then the children of Israel did put away Balaam and Ashtaroth and served the Lord only. Now Samuel has seen that the children of Israel are lamenting, they're wailing, they're longing after the Lord. But Samuel knew that lamenting and brokenness weren't enough. He wasn't satisfied yet with the degree of their earnestness. Because while they're lamenting, while they're longing, while they're wailing for the Lord, it's obvious from the passage that the idols were still in their houses. Isn't that odd? Longing for the Lord, crying to God, O Lord, return. And you've got an idol sitting on yourself. What an eye-opener that is. Lamenting after the Lord, but still holding on to the idols. If they were removed, then it would, if they weren't removed from the house, put it like this, I'll put it negatively. If they were not removed from their homes, from their lives, it would indicate that their lamentation was insincere. So Samuel tells them to return to the Lord with all their hearts. And what did that mean? What was that going to look like? Put away your idols. Serve him only. And you'll know that revival has come to the church when she puts away her idols. When she removes those things in her worship, in her walk, and in her wants that come between her and the Lord. Whatever it is. The fact is, Christ is not going to bear any rivals for your love. He must be all or nothing. He must be the first love. If the idol, whatever it is, takes you away from him, if it draws you away from him, 
If it draws you away from his word, if it draws you away from prayer, if it draws you away in relationship with Christ, it's an idol and it has to be put away. It's that simple. You can't have your idols in Christ too. And so these people, indication there was revival, they put away their idols. Thirdly, they served the Lord only. That's verse 4 again. Not only did they separate themselves from their idolatrous sins... That's the negative side. But they consecrated themselves to the Lord. That's the positive side. Put this away. Cling to him. Put the idols away. Serve only him. Don't serve the idols. Serve the Lord only. Now you see when you serve the Lord only, he only is your master. And all you want to know is, Lord, what would you have me to do? You're the master. And that's what happens when God sends revival. The attitude is that of a servant who is seeking to know the will of God so that he can do the will of God. You can say it could be summed up in that old hymn. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting yielded and still. Whatever you want to do with me, do it. All I want to know is your will. That's revival. From wanting nothing but their own wills to wanting God's will. What a change, what a change was wrought in their souls. Thirdly and finally, the instruments of revival. When the Lord is pleased to revive his people, he always works through means, both divine and human instrumentality the first is preparation of heart verse 3 Samuel spake unto all the house of Israel saying if ye do return unto the Lord with all your hearts then put away the strange gods and asterisks from among you and prepare your hearts unto the Lord prepare your hearts you see he knew that it's not enough just to have if I cannot modernize it, that in some church meeting or in our prayer closet, we experience very painful conviction of sin and how much we've offended God and have an, an earnest desire not to offend him anymore. All of that is good and it's proper. But we have to prepare our hearts to that end. He's telling them to do something. Do something. Here's what you must do. Prepare your hearts unto the Lord. You see, this is all about a heart matter. This is a heart matter. 
It was the idols who stole their hearts. There's so many things that can steal our hearts. And that's why through Solomon, my son, give me thine heart. Because when he has the heart, he has everything. When he has your heart. We must prepare our hearts against those sins that drove us from the Lord in the first place. The work starts first in the heart. You won't go about dealing with the idols and taking them out of your life if the heart isn't first engaged and prepared for that work. I'm smiling to myself because I'm reminded of someone and I'm not making any critiques, judgments. This is just an illustration. TV was a big problem for him. We'd get caught up in it. And I was visiting one time in his home. This was years and years ago. And he was telling about how bad it was and how awful and just. So where is it? It's in my closet. Well, all it takes is opening the door of the closet and setting it back up again. Doesn't matter what the idol is. When you prepare your heart to deal with it. You prepare your heart to do those things that will really deal with the idol. Because now the Lord has the heart and you don't have the heart for those things anymore. It took you away from him. Came in between you and God. And how can you hold on to them? No, Lord, you've got my heart. You've got it. It's all yours. The second instrument was prayer. You read about that in verses 5 and 6. He gathered all Israel together in Mizpah, and I will pray for you unto the Lord. And they gathered, they gathered together to Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. Samuel's praying, and the people are praying. There was confession here. We have sinned. There was contrition here. They got involved in fasting. I mean, that, that's where you're, you know, there can't be anything getting in the way of this. I, I've got to spend this time praying. We need the Lord. It sounds so strange in our present culture. They humbled themselves. And in that prayer of Samuel in verse 9, he took that suckling and he slew it, which means he was praying on the ground of shed blood. He knew that was the way that God was going to be appeased and blessing was going to come. It was going to be through the shedding of blood. The lesson you understand is clear. You pray and you weep and you plead on the ground of Christ's atoning work. 
because of Calvary, Lord, because Jesus Christ shed his blood to save me from my sins and from my idols, not to play with them, not to toy with them. But turn my back upon them. It was preparation of heart and it was prayer. And there's one final instrument, not even mentioned in black and white, but he had to be there. That's the paraclete. O Holy Ghost, revival comes from thee. Any move that's going to change us will come from the Holy Ghost. He's the author of revival. He's the author of repentance. He's the author of lamentation for God. He's the author of faith. It's the Holy Spirit. The instrument he uses above all others. The Holy Ghost. These are revival truths. We need revival. This church needs revival. I need revival. I keep praying, Lord, revive my heart. It's an admission. It's an admission that I need reviving. It's an awareness, an understanding. I'm not living how I could live. I'm not enjoying the presence and the power of God that I could enjoy. Revive my heart. All of us should be praying for that. Every day. You should be meeting to pray for God to come and revive the little work. That's what they did. They were earnest. Pray. Got to seek the Lord. And turn from anything and everything that takes us away from him. May the Lord seal that word to our souls. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's all pray. Eternal God and Father in heaven, we thank thee for this speaking voice of thy word tonight. Let it not, let it not, Lord, just be another sermon that I have preached that has no effect upon my life, no effect upon the lives of the people here. We admit our need to be revived. We need delivered from our idols. The things that we know come between us and thee. Wilt thou not look down, Lord, and wilt thou not come down, we pray. O Spirit of God, we plead with thee in Jesus' name that thou wilt step in and do the work alone which thou canst do. In our Savior's name, we ask all of this with expectation that thou wilt answer prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.